Good morning. So glad to see you all here. Can you believe this is the last Sunday before Christmas? I feel like I just put the tree up, and I know Derwin thinks I put it way too early, but I feel like I just put the tree up, and here is Christmas. Time flies, doesn't it? I hope, uh, like Naomi said, you enjoy this week focusing on Jesus. Uh, one of uh, the pastors I love, um, he says, um, read the story of Jesus chronologically. So start with Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, and Matthew chapter 2 to help you focus, and that's something I've been doing this Advent season, uh, reading it a few times. Um, sometimes we get distracted uh, in this Instagram world. We want our Christmas to be picture perfect. We want uh, great memories. Uh, we want things to look good, and we could get slowly, slowly distracted. Um, we think Christmas should be silent night, all is calm, all is bright, sleep in heavenly peace, right? And that's what we're aiming for. That's what our hope is for. But that's not the biblical Christmas. So I thought maybe we'll just read through... Um, Matthew and Luke, and just go through the story before this Christmas. So if you have the Bibles, um, open it to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to, to the end there. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what, if, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew's Christmas story is from the perspective of Joseph, while Luke gives the perspective of Mary. Um, in the first century, uh, getting married involved three steps. Uh, it happens still in a lot of the Eastern cultures. Uh, first is the engagement. It's a formal ceremony where you promise yourself to one another in front of others. Uh, the second is the betrothal. Uh, it's a legally binding step. Uh, if you want to break that, uh, you have to go through divorce. Even though you live apart from each other with your parents, um, you're legally married. And the last step is the wedding, where the whole village comes together. Uh, well, for those of you who know me, I am originally from Sri Lanka, an Eastern culture, and when Derwin asked me to marry him, we went for a day at uh, Niagara Falls, and at the end of the day, he asked me to marry him. I came 
with great excitement and told my mom that uh, we are getting married. Uh, and my mom's first response was, oh, we need to have an engagement ceremony. And because we still do. And so I told Derwin all the details. This is what's going to happen. But as usual, he heard half of it. And I think he didn't <laughs> hear the other half. So I, I told him what's going to happen. I know what was going to happen. There's going to be you know, two-tiered cake. And I'm going to be dressed up. He's going to be dressed up. All my uncles and aunt, my mom comes from a family of uh, 18, eight siblings who are all in Toronto. And their families, all of them going to be there. So I had told this to him. Well, the day of the engagement, he calls me at noon and says, uh, so Angel, I was thinking I'll just come uh, from work. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, when are you going to change? He goes, change what? And I said, change into your suit. He goes, it's a hot summer day. There's no way I'm going to wear a suit. I'm like, you better wear a suit. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, if you have watched the movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I think it came in 2002, that's exactly what happened at our engagement. There was all my uncles and aunts, my aunts dressed in saris and bright colors, and there was Derwin's mom and dad and his sister and Derwin. The four of them came. Derwin's mom actually brought a bunt cake. And there we were, like, you know, all my uncles and aunts. And, uh, you know, we, Derwin, I think, was shocked that we were promising to each other. It was. It was a full-on engagement ceremony. Uh, Mary and Joseph has gone to the next step. They are betrothed. They are legally married, even though they are apart. Uh, Joseph probably is building a house, uh, maybe an extension in his father's house, and uh, getting ready, excited about this life together with Mary. And then he finds out Mary is pregnant. Probably he was deeply hurt by her unfaithfulness. Probably his hopes and dreams were shattered. But it says uh, Joseph was a righteous man. Uh, righteous man, it's a technical word in the Greek. Uh, it means he had a right relationship with God and others in relationship with the law. So here is Joseph wrestling to do the right thing. The law allowed him to take her to court and publicly expose her and bring shame on her and her family. But he also wanted to do right by Mary. It says after he wrestles with this and he decides to do the right thing, the angel comes to him in a, a dream. I think on a side note, if we are honestly trying to seek to do the right thing, by God and by others, God will come to us in our wrestling. Um, if, we are, if he is our shepherd and we are his sheep, uh, Psalm 23 says, he guides us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake, in Psalm 23. So uh, we'll get back to the rest of the verses later. Now, if you want to go to Luke chapter 2, uh, we'll see Mary's perspective. 
It says, um, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Jesus' birth actually takes place in history. Luke wants you to know that. This is not a cute bedtime story, a sentimental story like Santa Claus. Um, Luke wants you to know he, he takes the full opportunity to set the stage. Um, the reality is there was the Roman ruling was happening, Caesar Augustus. Um, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. His name was Octavian, and then he changes his name to Augustus. And um, census was to be taken. Why do you think census? It's always for taxes. Uh, so the taxes could be laid. Uh, I am an accountant after all, right? Uh, taxes should be taken and uh, should be laid on the common man, um, uh, usually the poor people. The tax burden would be laid on them. Um, so uh, Luke also wants you to know Israel was a Roman-occupied land at the time of Jesus' birth. It is under Roman oppression. Verse 3 to 4, it says, And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room available for them. I don't know about you, but I would think if God's son was going to be born, God would make everything smooth, right? It would be peaceful. It would be organized well. Uh, this would be a big occasion, right? There would be no interruption. There would be comfort and joy for Joseph, Mary, and the baby, right? That's what you would think because God had full control. Wrong. It's not the case. Because of Caesar Augustus, all the Roman occupied lands are traveling to their own country. Now, if you know the Roman Empire at that time, it would have been Europe, Mediterranean, North Africa, parts of Asia. So it's a big deal. Everyone is traveling everywhere. So it would have been crazy everywhere in the Roman world. So Joseph goes to Bethlehem from Nazareth. Now you think, oh, okay, that's kind of cute, right? It's a cute Christmas story. Um, but it is 145 kilometers distance. Google says it's going to take 32 hours to walk, probably like when Dan walks. Uh, probably if I walk, probably 50 uh, hours for walking. Um, now remember, Mary is full-term pregnant on a donkey. I'm a woman, and I've been pregnant twice. And let me tell you, I don't think it would have been comfort and joy for her. 
I remember when we dr drove over the speed bumps, I did not appreciate that. Um, it seems like it was one interruption after another since the good news came. Uh, for Mary and for Joseph. Mary probably would have been 15 years old, and uh, when she gets the good news from uh, the angel, uh, she, the angel says, you know, this is going to happen. You're going to conceive a virgin, and with God, nothing is impossible. And she says, a sign to you would be your cousin Elizabeth, who's advanced in years and barren, is going to be pregnant. And so she runs to Elizabeth to see, is this going to happen? And she's there for three months in the hill country. And then she comes back with a little tummy. And um, how do you think the neighbors responded? This is, remember, first century in a small village, right? And um, Joseph, you know, among his neighbors, there is lots of gossip going around, lots of shame, shame for the family. Who would believe a virgin has conceived, right? Who would believe that? So it's one discomfort after the other, 145-kilometer journey, painful journey, having a baby in a cave, probably, that's what they think, or a... Um, uh, barn maybe, uh, but in a strange land. It's like you going to the interior, maybe a hundred mile house, and all of a sudden you're going to have a baby there, right? Um, unsanitary, smelly place to have your baby. I wonder whether she thought it was so unfair. She said yes, and life hasn't turned out the way that she had thought it was going to happen. This is the Messiah. She knew, she knew that, this, it's the Messiah. But a Messiah on a dirty feeding trough? That's where she lays the baby. I know manger sounds a very sanitized version of a dirty feeding trough, right? Life will never be the same for Joseph and Mary. A lot of uncertainty about their future. I think life in North America, we always long for trouble-free, comfortable, joyful life. I don't know about you, that's what I like. Uh, we don't want any interruptions. Uh, we want life to go smoothly. And when interruptions do come, we feel like, God, are you there? What's going on? I feel rattled, right? That's what we feel. I wonder what was the conversation Joseph and Mary had in the barn or in the cave. Maybe some of you are having very similar questions right now as you think about Christmas. Verse 8, it says, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. 
And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Here is the shepherds minding their own business, right? Living in the fields with their cattle and their sheep. An angel appears to them, an interruption, right? Have you noticed every time the angel comes, the first thing they say is, do not be afraid. Um, it happened to Zachariah in the Christmas story, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds. And then it says, behold, the angel says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. The Jewish people were looking forward to the Messiah. They were for years now, probably since Adam and Eve. Uh, this child will bring good news and great joy, not to the Jewish people, but to all people. I'm sure the, the, the shepherds were shocked by that. Every nation, tribe, and tongue are going to be have great joy because of this baby. And then uh, he says, today, um, in the town of David, uh, Luke uses this word, uh, a Greek word to signify a new era of messianic salvation. This long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one. And what's the sign? The sign is a child wrapped in strips of cloth lying in a feeding trough. That's the sign. Now imagine if it was Caesar's son, it would be written all in gold, right? Everywhere. It would be trumpets playing. But this is going to be the sign, is this child is going to be on a feeding trough. What kind of sign is this for a king? What kind of a kingdom is he bringing? The first visitors for this king are shepherds in the first century, Shepherds were like servants. They were kind of in the lowest class in the social uh, pole there. What the first guests are servants for this king? What kind of kingdom is he bringing? I love this about Jesus because his kingdom is for the broken, for the lowly, the marginalized, the outcast, the wounded. That's his kingdom. It's for everyone. It's not for the rich, the famous, the powerful. If you feel like you are on the outside, welcome into Jesus' kingdom. I love this about Jesus. Um, I wonder why the angels didn't say, go and spread this news to the religious leaders, the kings, and the powerful, the rich people. 
I wonder, you know, when the angel shared the message to Zechariah, who was a priest at, at the temple, he couldn't even believe it, right? Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. I think this is one of the first times the kingdom of heaven is breaking through into the physical earth. What's up there cannot contain itself because the king of heaven has become physical, human flesh. They can't, heaven can't contain it. And that's why the angels are coming in, in droves and singing. And it says, a peace to those on whom his favor rests. Who do you think God's favor rests on? It's not the religious. It's those who put their trust and hope in Jesus, uh, in God. Because later on we would find those who trust in him will become children of God. So all this is to say, those involved in the Christmas story, where the kingdom breaks through, there were interruptions, interruptions to their normal life. They were required to take some effort to go somewhere, to do things that was not in their plans. Uh, there were disappointments, betrayals, heartache, difficulty giving up dreams and hopes, and also required some obedience to trust God. This Christmas, most likely, you don't have to walk 145 kilometers in full term. But I have a sense there's going to be lots of interruptions in your life that you hadn't planned on you hadn't hoped for. Uh, maybe for some of you it's financial hardship, financial, uh, some relationships that are broken, maybe health-wise you're not so sure, career is changing, dreams have been interrupted. I just, as I was preparing, I had this sense from Jesus that when you are going through these things, think of it as an invitation from Jesus to invite him into your life. When you are going through this stuff, because in North America, we like to have independence. We want to do life on our own terms. I know that's what we all aim for in our work, in our uh, home. We want to have independence. And sometimes we like to do life on our own terms. I know that. I like to and plan and then get frustrated. And I know when I'm doing life on my own terms, uh, there are signs for me. I, I have some signs. Um, some of them are, I don't have joy. I am lacking in joy, and probably our, my family would notice it more than anyone else. Uh, some of the other signs are you are angry about everything. 
maybe the entitlement uh, seeps into your life, right? I deserve more than this. This can't happen to me. Uh, maybe we are anxious all the time. We are stressed out uh, most of the time. Maybe for some of us, we are feeling isolated and we have a pity party. Uh, maybe these are some of the signs. If you have those signs, no judgment here. When you feel those signs coming, just think of it as these are signs of invitations from Jesus for you to let him in. Let him into your chaos because I have this sense he wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joy of those who take refuge in him. So I think Jesus wants you to find out that he is good uh, in these circumstances. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 1 again. And verse 21 uh, the angel says to him, she will give birth to a son, that's Mary, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and they will, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, in the first century, uh, names meant a bit more than it does right now. Uh, it's, it was intended to make a statement, like a, a person's essential self or a personality profile, a character reference. That's the way they did the naming. And Jesus was a very common name, even... In some countries, it's still a very common name. Um, in Greek, it's Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, um, which usually is translated to Joshua. Yeshua is a short form for Yehoshua. Yahweh is the one who saves. More dynamically, it would be Yahweh to the rescue. Usually when they named a child Jesus or Yeshua, it just signifies God saves. But here the angel is telling Joseph, and Matthew wants you to know, you are to give him the name Jesus, literally, because he himself will save his people from their sins. Who is this himself will save his people? If you read uh, the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, the Lord says this often, um, I, even I am Yahweh, there is no other savior besides me. He says that, uh, Isaiah 43, 11, there's quite a few places he says that. Yahweh himself to the rescue. 
This baby is Yahweh in person. He is literally Yahweh to the rescue. That's what Matthew and the angel wants you to know. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Again, this Mary's boy, Emmanuel, is not a sign, but it's itself signified. Hebrew, Emmanuel means with us. El means God. He is with us God. The living God, Yahweh, has come in person to be with us. That's who Jesus is. It's interesting, that's in Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter of the book. Matthew wants to end the, his gospel. He says, these are Jesus' words. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, go into the world, into every nation, make disciples. And then he ends it with this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the king of heaven and earth. All authority has been given to him. He's the resurrected Jesus. And he says, this is what I want you to remember about me. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want the worship team to come. And um, as they come, I want you to remember who this baby wrapped in strips of cloth, in the cattle feeding trough is. He is Yahweh to the rescue. He is the with us God, the one who promises, I will be with you always. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings. Like Derwin said last week, he is Yahweh in Isaiah 53, who feels our pain, the man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. This is Jesus. I'm going to pray, uh, and then they are going to sing. Um, so if you want, you can bow your heads or look up, whatever makes you feel to connect with Jesus. Father, I thank you that you came in human flesh. Thank you that you feel our pain, our sorrows, our disappointments. You are not a God who is far, but you are a God who is near. You are the Savior for our sins, our brokenness, our shame, our pain. Jesus, I thank you that you can turn our water into wine. You can turn our lack into joy. You could turn our chaos into hope. 
you could turn our weeping into joy because you have come. We have hope. In Jesus' name, amen.